Welcome to Data Science Perspectives. This series focuses on analytics and data science professionals from across industry to learn about how their career unfolded, what skills they look for when hiring, and what trends they think are coming next. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Data Science Perspectives. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Today's best of episode is going to feature executives discussing how their skills and the issues they face transferred across different industries and or business functions. This gets to the heart of how executives might grow their, their skills over time and how they learn to apply them broadly. I've once again provided the exact spots where the different execs begin. So if you'd like to hop to anyone, you're welcome to do so. And with that, let's get into the show. Craig Brabeck. Chief Data and Analytics Officer, McDonald's. And, you know, after the Navy, you've worked for four really big name companies, you know, Cater- Caterpillar, McKesson, Ford, and McDonald's, all very large, very different businesses, uh, but you're dealing with issues of scale. You're dealing with issues of data. So how did you see some similarities in terms of the challenges and approaches at some of these big companies, even though to an outsider, they would appear to be, you know, obviously completely different? Yeah, you know, the, the commonalities of them is, is they're all global companies. I mean, they're, their products are in multiple countries. Their employees are in multiple countries. They're operating in, in, in these environments that are actually a little bit different in every one that you go to, whether that be Ford or McDonald's or Caterpillar, like you said. And they truly want to scale out. So if you make a solution take place in, say, the Netherlands, they want it to work in the United States or to Canada as well or Australia. And if you make a... a a construction solution that makes on a on a road in the U.S. They wanted to work that solution to work out there in 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 Africa as well. Just a complete desire to implement wide. But what I would say is is don't start with a mindset of scale immediately. Think big, but start small, and then move rapidly to understand the problems, and then start focusing on the scale equation. You have scale in mind, but don't use that as a limiting factor in how you build out solutions and think through them to get verification that this is going to work, that you're going to get buy-in and support, and that you're going to get momentum and pull in from your business. So, you know, across all of those, what I've seen work successfully is to start with a more iterative focus, uh, a an agile ag- uh, product development lifecycle or an analytics product development lifecycle that allows you to go through some early stage experimentation and testing and piloting before you start going to to broader scale implementation. And that would be true in all of these companies. So let's flip that script a little bit. You just talked about one or two things that are sort of commonalities across those different industries. Are there any things that jump out at you that have been rather unique about some of the analytics challenges that you had to face uh, as you switch from industry to industry? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of difference in, in, in maturity levels across companies and across industries. And it's not good nor bad. It's just that's the operating environment you are in. So when you go to Florida, dress appropriately. When you go to Canada, dress appropriately. When you go into the culture of the company, understand where they are with their analytics journey and their data maturity and their analytics maturity as well. John Carter, UC Davis and former SVP at Schwab. You know, you've spent a good chunk of your career in financial services in one form or the other. And 
you know, I'd be just be curious about some of the, the, the similarities you've seen uh, both across those various companies and across time and maybe some of the things that have uh, changed the most over the years. Well, I think, you know, financial services was was one of the um, industries that really recognized the value of analytics, you know, early on and, and spent a lot of time kind of building capabilities. But as I worked in financial services and worked in large companies in particular, one of the things I found is that in order to really impact the organization with analytics, um, it became harder and harder over time uh, because organizations got bigger and more complex. So one of the things, um, you know, and many different challenges that we faced in, in, in financial services with large companies, you know, you know, competing priorities, getting the right talent, uh, executive support. But one of the biggest problems, to be honest, I find it's still kind of is a, an issue today is really kind of like the data and technology infrastructure, okay? Because company, financial companies, they're acquiring companies, they're bringing in new data, um, they, they're motivated to do things quickly and don't always have all of the governance and, and things of that nature in place. So that became uh, a big challenge is to try, try to create the right data and technology infrastructure so that analytics could be done quickly, efficient, efficiently, and satisfy you know a wide range of diverse users within a financial services company. Francis Boykin, Director of Advanced Analytics, AT&T. So you mentioned supply chain already, and I wanted to get to the point of, you've spent some time in the supply chain analytics group, and, and then more recently, you spent a lot of time on more of the marketing side. Obviously, tons of analytics in each, but very, very different types of problems, very different types of data. So what, what have been some of the differences you found between those two areas that, that were uh, intriguing and interesting to you? And how would you compare and contrast uh, the life of a supply chain analytics person versus a marketing analytics person? Well, I will say this. When I, I was in marketing for 11 years, and then I went to global supply chain. And what I always say when people ask me about that experience, I always say, I left marketing and I moved to Missouri the show me state. One of the things that I found found in global supply chain that I didn't find in marketing is that it was global supply chain is more risk averse. So all of these innovations and hey, let's go try this and see how that works out. Global supply chain is a little bit more closed in that area than marketing. Marketing is very much Let's go throw a few things up against the wall and let's see what see what sticks and let's see how that works out. It's the whole purpose of marketing to reach out, kind of get an idea of, of things that interest people and then see if that works. So the analytics that we do within marketing is all about, hey, how can I reach out to more people? How can I draw in more people? How I, can I sell to more people? That's what marketing is about. What global su supply chain is about is how can I provision to support all of the things that we want to do at AT&T. So how do I bring in more of the widgets that I need to build more towers and make sure that I have them when I need them? So they have a little bit less, well, a lot less wiggle room. And so the analytics that I did within global supply chain was a lot more structured, a lot more um, tense and I had to do a lot more selling on my advanced analytics. So when I went in with the proof of concept within global supply chain, it had to be on point. It had to, to provide some specific benefits that the global supply chain, chain team could leverage um, 
with less risk. Not saying that marketing just flails around and does whatever, but it was just a little bit more ability to innovate and fail fast is what they call it at AT&T, but fail fast within marketing. Whereas I didn't necessarily have that latitude within global supply chain. Satish Padiar, Divisional Vice President, Healthcare Services Corporation. Well, you know, you mentioned about your engineering background. You've got a, a wide range of industries. You've been in software, you've been in financial services, manufacturing, distribution, healthcare. I mean, you've done a little bit of everything. So are there any commonalities you've seen across those widely varied industries in terms of how data and analytics gets applied? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it started out as a functional thing, Bill. Um, you know, obviously data and analytics at its core doesn't necessarily change that much. Um, part of the part of the reason that some of those career changes have happened is because as industries um, go through their respective waves of transformation, um, there's demand to apply some of these newer techniques, right? Including data and analytics and AI. And so, you know, where financial services may have been further along a decade or so ago, uh, that, that, you know, there's an opportunity to apply uh, this expertise, this knowledge, these skills in that vertical. And then as um, some of those other industries that you mentioned came along and tried to do the same thing, um, the same happened. So there is a commonality of the function of the business, if you will, of doing data and analytics and AI. Uh, but there's also, uh, I think, the the discipline of learning the domain, learning the business um, itself, and then being creative about applying these constructs to the respective uh, industry uh, that you're in at a given time. Now, when you talk about the domain knowledge, I remember. Uh... Earlier in my career, when I first worked with a couple different industries, there was a point where I think people viewed it a bit as a weakness because I wasn't super deep in industry A or industry B. But then as I worked with more industries, it morphed, I think, both in the people I was talking to's mind, like the clients, but also my own mind, that it was a strength because while all the domains are somewhat different, they've got their own terminology, some of their own data. There, to me, there's a lot of, of, you use the term commonalities across them in terms of how it's utilized. So I guess, have, have you similarly found that you've been able to go to a new domain, a new industry, and, and so much of what you knew before applies, even though the, a lay person would say it probably wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in fact, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think professionals, um, leaders from verticals that are perceived and in reality maybe further along get recruited away right so really you know that's been uh, some some aspect of my journey um is um you know the ability to sort of contextualize for a given um industry what has worked well elsewhere and then obviously there's some element of learning the business you're in and then applying it in a relevant way but that being stipulated, I think to your point, there is a lot of commonality. There are things, there is value in having applied the, the, uh, the ideas, the constructs elsewhere uh, that helps one do this in a mature, uh, in a maturing space. Melinda Barrero, Enterprise Analytics, Chick-fil-A. Well, you know, in the business that you went into, it was a lot of uh, market research, you know, more traditional market research and, and I know that uh, those two are often thought of as fairly distinct, and I, I've always disagreed with that. I think they they do distinct things, but they're they're aimed at at same places. So, how do you see 
the overlap between traditional market research and more modern uh, data science approaches that are, you know, digging into these masses of data that, that we didn't used to have, which led in part to the need for market research. Yeah, well, you know, we're similar in that we see the overlap, uh, Bill. Um, and traditional market research, at least that I understand it, you know, there's two components to it. You listen and you ask questions. And traditionally, at least in consumer research or human research, the listening was one-on-one -on -one interviews like we're doing or focus groups, small groups. And then you would ask questions. Now, traditionally, there were these long hour, remember those one, one plus hour surveys, all the habits and practices that you have with this product. So at, traditionally, we ask long questions. So now, though, in the modern time, we still listen and we still ask questions, but you're doing listening in a different way. So you listen by, you know, harvesting social media data, extracting the things that people are talking about. So that's all modern. Um, that may be traditional now, but that, that at one time was modern. So you're listening in different ways and technology helps you listen. Um, you can actually listen or, or observe behaviors with cameras. You, know, you have to be careful about, with that because you know you want to do things um, in an appropriate way and not be, um, you know, follow all the rules and also do it ethically. Uh, but the listening now technology has helped helped us listen, and then on the asking, the listening helps us get smarter. So we have to ask fewer questions because I don't know about you, but I don't like surveys. <laughs> so the fewer surveys that I can answer, the better. And then also when we ask questions now, frequently we ask them, we ask fewer, and we ask them in open-ended, purposeful ways. And then that open-ended, like I could ask you, Bill, why do you like Chick-fil-A? And you would respond. And that's also text data that we can mine with things like natural language processing. So listening and questioning have always been around, but technology and models and methods now allow us to listen in different ways and listen more and ask purposefully. Rasmus Wigner, partner, Bain & Company. So I don't think I'm giving away anything secret, given your accent, that you didn't grow up in the U.S., uh, you know, you grew up over in Europe and, and but then you, you know, ended up coming over to the U.S. to work and you've stayed here for many decades. So what what made you jump over the pond and then uh, what's kept you here and, and, and what are you, what are the differences you see in if you did your same type of role you're doing here in the U.S. versus over in Europe? Uh, is, is there a difference in terms of how business is done in your opinion? Um, well, of course, there are cultural differences, just like between companies, there are cultural differences between uh, countries, right? Um, um, you didn't give away too much, uh, really, Bill. So I went to high school in Alabama. You, 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 you can take the, <laughs> the boy out of the South, but not the South of the boy. I'm, I'm going to refrain from singing any Baptist hymns here with you. Um, but uh, um, my, my wife is a, has a PhD in American literature, so uh, uh, working in the United States uh, or, and, or coming back always was high on our list. Uh, I will say that in our global world, um, how, how business leaders think, their priorities, um, uh, the care for their teams, um, 
those, those things are all very, very similar, really. I, I've been very lucky that the senior executives we work with, that I work with, and the teams that I work with, um, they're all very driven. Um, they're all, you know, change-oriented. They all want to learn. They're all very highly collaborative with us. And, and in the last several years, whether that's been with you and your former team uh, or other uh, global client engagements that I've uh, led and had the pleasure of working with, um, those are global teams. There's not much difference in terms of uh, do you work with a German or do you work with an American or someone from Singapore, frankly. Um, what, what I will say is that the, it accelerates the learning for myself, for our teams when we have these types of opportunities. And what I mean by that is it uh, uh, accelerates the learning in terms of how to work with different cultures and being sensitive to um, different personalities, right? And that, that just picking up the uh, elements of, of behavior at, at, at what point dinner is being eaten when, when you have a, a, a dinner between a main team and a client team, right? That is very different in Spain than if you are um, in, in the winter time in the Nordics, right? In North Europe, Northern Europe, where it gets dark really, really early, right? So um, very, those things are different, but by and large, I think uh, how businesses, global firms certainly today operate is, um, is uh, very, very similar. Mano Manochar. Chief Data and Analytics Officer, Travelers. Just in your last three companies, if you think about Deer, GE, Travelers, three very large companies, very, very different businesses, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, Correct. in many different respects. Are there some consistencies you've seen in terms of the kind of issues that, you're, that you've run into that even though these businesses are very different, you say, you know, there's this common this commonality that, uh, that, that is just something that large businesses are going to have to deal with when it comes to scaling their data analytics programs. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I think, you know, each one of these companies, 100 plus year old companies, right, have uh, done really, really well and thriving and surviving, right, in, in, in terms of uh, their future. Um, I, but to your point, some of the, the, the barriers and inhibitors and, and challenges that you've got to overcome, um, and, you know, which kind of alluded to in the second prong of the, the overall stretch strategy, right, that you've got to think about. I mean, it's it's no different than things like legacy systems, right? How how do you overcome the challenges around some of your core uh, platforms and systems that may have been around for decades in some cases, right? You know, how how do you work around those? How do you uh, connect well into them, right? Because that's where the scale is going to come from as you start to build some of these new capabilities and new DNA uh, in your systems and your organization, right? Uh, is be able to address things around technical debt, maybe in some of these systems, right? Um, you know, think the other area that typically you got to think about, which is the change acceleration, right? How do you get more and more people excited? How do you build momentum around uh, the early wins that you may have, right? So, so I think, um, you know, th that is another consistent thread. Uh, threat. Um, I would say the second, uh, I mean, I mean, a third area that that really you got to think about is. You know, gaining scale. What would that look like, right? And 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 as you get through your first few wins, you know, I I know typically you end up spending you know disproportionate amount of time trying to get those to be a success, but then really it's about getting the broader organization excited, people around you excited, and and say, hey, that's the only way you're going to be able to gain scale is that it's not the tiger teams that you assemble at the beginning of something, right? It's 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 really the the broader organization that have got to realize the opportunity 
and 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 of course buy into the vision and the the um, you know the overall uh, program that you may be building, right? And and of course then you know that that's where you get to a tipping point, right? The proverbial tipping point uh, after you've got the you know kind of fifty percent buy-in and 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 you know then you let the the wind speak and you know. Um, uh, I would say uh, envy is alive and well, and you leverage that to get other people excited about it. And, and uh, you know, you focus on the ones that want to work with you and get those early wins done. And of course, uh, um, you know, let the, the success speak for itself. Scott Radcliffe, Managing Director, Emory University. Well, you've had a very broad experience background. You know, we just talked about some time at Cox. I know you're also uh, at, at other, what I'll call client side yeah. companies. You spent some time at SaaS, which is the product side. You spent some time at IBM on the consulting side. So you've kind of hit three of the, the, the most general areas that people can focus and not many people have done all of those. So what did you see as some of the pros and cons of each, the product, the client and the consulting side? And and like if you're a student today, what would what would draw you to or push you away from those as a career choice? Oh, sure. Yeah, I love to talk about that. I kind of talk about my journey very often with our students here. So, you know, I would say that on the client side, one of the one of the positives is that you can get really deep into a particular industry or business, right? So so you really learn the data, you really learn the business processes, the metrics that kind of indicate business performance, all of that stuff. Now, of course, as you might imagine, the downside of that is if you stay in that industry or, or that company for a really long time, kind of on the client side, you're kind of locked into that perspective. And so you don't get sort of that breadth of exposure to different kinds of problems and data sets um, that you do say moving on to the next pop, uh kind of role I had, which was in consulting, right? Where you're going to have more exposure to different clients, a, a wider variety of data sets that you get to explore and those kinds of things. Then, of course, as you mentioned, I moved on to SAS. Um, you know, that was a great, great experience for me, uh, even though, you know, in SAS, I remained kind of in the communications and media industry. I got to travel the world. I had a global team. And what was really cool about that experience is that because essentially my team was doing a combination of kind of product development, business development and consulting, what I was able to learn because we were working mainly with kind of executives and kind of talking to them about their problems kind of in the big sense and whether it was top line or bottom line and then doing proof of concepts based on that understanding of their business problem to demonstrate the possible financial return of this analytic application applied to a specific kind of problem. So through that process, I really, really learned a lot about kind of at that strategic level, how to help an organization think about its business in the context of investments in analytics, data and technology, and then 
how do we think about how we're going to make money from those investments? Brad Henderson, Vice President of Data and Analytics, Work Capital Group. Given how many brands you, you've had the opportunity to work with over the years, given, you know, given that portfolio, um, yes, you know, to your point earlier, you know, some are, are, are food or hospitality, some are you know, uh, more on the uh, health and fitness, you have some in the service sector. Are there any threads or themes you found are really common across all of them, even though they're very, very different, that you just find here's some consistent uh, uh, analytical issues that each of our companies is really needing to address these days? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, the common thread that that we're seeing is interest and focus on understanding the customer. Um, you know, it's really a lot of people say that, but there are real implications around how you leverage data and analytics to understand who your customers are and and how they're performing over time. Um, it's, you know, a lot of the data sources and systems that are currently in place within organizations are not geared, are not set up for understanding the customer. They're, they're understanding, they're set up to understand the business or the unit level performance or the comparable performance of, of, of a unit, a location. When it comes to understanding a customer, it's not necessarily the same thing. A customer can go to multiple locations, can go to multiple brands. So you've got to really figure out, you know, how do you identify metrics and um, create a bridge between the financial systems and and what the customer is doing? Um, you know, really, at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out, you know, you're trying to tie everything to attribution or return on investment, you know, to create that, you know, that virtuous life cycle of, of analytics. You know, if we invest here and do this, what does this mean for the business? So having that bridge between customer metrics and financial metrics is something that's really key. Um, but you know, that's the reason why data and analytics is such a challenge today because every organization is unique and you've got to figure out how to stitch those systems together, um, uh, drive awareness and education and how that works um, um, so that everybody can get bought in on the, the outputs and the deliverables from information like that. And, and then everything starts to become very harmonious. Um, you start to see, you know, if I pull this lever here, what does that do for profitability? What does that do for my three year, uh, you know, customer lifetime, uh, lifetime value? Um, you know, these are the things that are really, um, you know, we're really focused on now and what a lot of firms out there are focused on. Oh,